So welcome to today's HeanCast, where I'm talking with Alison Dougal about tinkling the ivories. Alison's head of the Department of Child and Dental Public Health at Trinity College in Dublin, and is also the president of the International Association for Disability and Oral Health. So I have known you for a very long time, and I've always known you as a dentist. So please, could you tell us why you became a dentist? I was actually planning to be a concert pianist. And as a child, I did lots of competition work, and that was always considered to be my chosen career going forward. But having done lots of international competitions against extremely talented Koreans and Chinese pianists, I realized quite frankly that I probably wasn't good enough. And it made me very nervous and anxious. All my family are in the theater. So I was the first person in my family to think about going to university. And when at school they said to me, but you've got to be a pianist. You've done all this preparation from a young child. What are you going to do? And I think really just to shut them up and because it was like something that would be acceptable, I said, oh, it's no problem, I'm going to be a dentist. And my friend's dad was a dentist and that's just how it happened. And then suddenly I found myself about three years later at dental school and then I went through dental school and I was quite a party person and I didn't put huge amounts of time into my study and found myself age 23 out in the community and I was a dentist and that's really all I can say. How do you choose you want to be a dentist? Obviously, it's a slightly bizarre choice, isn't it? But that's how it happened to me. I have to say it's not something I would have ever chosen to be. (laughs) So how did you get from there, that community job, into being a haemophilia specialist dentist? I worked in general practice for quite a long time and I've always been very socially aware and so I liked to treat my whole community. But again, it's a long story. I was working for a very swanky practice doing lots of cosmetic stuff and lots of advanced bridging crown work. Aesthetic dentistry was just starting to become very part of the body idiom. And then the practice I was working for went bankrupt. I don't quite know still to this day and I had to suddenly find myself without a job. So I took a government job working with people with disabilities and long-term medical conditions. And I found this speciality called special care dentistry, which is basically dentistry for complex people. So you do all of the ordinary stuff, but whether that person has got dementia, autism, or in this case, hemophilia, where we need to adapt what we do. I was one of the first people to be trained in this specialty in the UK and then after having a career break in my 40s I decided to move over to Ireland and just by chance my job I was by then a consultant and an academic part of it was at the National Haemophilia Centre and I'd had a very pioneering guy who'd retired who'd done the job before me and he'd set up a service integrated into the comprehensive care model and it was very unique and I just ended up taking that job and thought this is quite interesting and it caught my attention and from then it became my research interest it became somewhere where I realized there was lots of work to be done both with patients with dentists and the teams that treat them and I think it was just one of those things that suited me at the time. And thereafter, although I continue with all my other roles with other groups of patients, this has become my research and I, some could say my passion because it's such a lot to do. So that's really how I got there. I know that's a long winded way, but it's just how I ended up there. Great. 
So when I worked at Great Ormond Street, initially every single child that we had mm. also saw the dentist. And over time, the access to the dentist has become much more difficult. Yeah. So do you think that every person with a bleeding disorder needs to see a specialist dentist or is there something that is specialist about what you do for those special bits? I think many years ago when services were set up, there was great fear about dentistry. And I think that at that point, historically, there hadn't been the products, there hadn't been the knowledge. So it was safer to have everybody seen on site. And there's no doubt that even with someone with a mild bleeding disorder, if they have a really invasive dental surgery that isn't managed well, it carries a significant risk of bleeding. So at that point, it was seen to be advantageous, but very paternalistic. Plus with children, there is a kind of time limited. At 16, they go somewhere else. So there's always a, a manageable number. So those models where every child sees a specialist dentist is not required, but it's often manageable. And we know that all of the oral health habits that are established in childhood are more likely to persist. No, I don't think all children need to see a specialist dentist. Undoubtedly, every child with a bleeding disorder needs to have a dental home. That's somewhere where they go regularly to have their teeth checked, to have their teeth surveyed, monitored, and to have that preventive work. Regarding adults, this is the big thing about transition. This is basically where a lot of centers or a lot of countries organize care for children. And then when they transition to adult services, they still have haemophilia comprehensive care, but as far as their mouth is concerned, they're thrown out into the big wide world with no education, self-education in how to risk manage their mouth. Dentists are seeing them for the first time. They haven't seen them through childhood and learned about their condition along with them. So they're thrown into this big wilderness. Do I think they need to see a specialist dentist? No. In the whole, no. I think that we know now with the research that we've done with the guidelines that are out there, we know that in the main, patients with haemophilia having basic treatment fillings, most cleanings, don't need particularly special measures. But it comes down to the fact, Kate, that this is all about prevention. That actually what we know now that we didn't know in the 60s, 70s is how to prevent disease. So the most important reason for somebody to see a dentist regularly, specialist or non-specialist, is to survey, to prevent, to get problems early so you don't get to the stage where somebody with haemophilia or severe von Willebrand's needs a dental extraction. And we've got grade A science to show us how to prevent disease. So for somebody with a severe or a mild bleeding disorder, there is never any other group that deserve prevention as part of their oral health program. Does it need to be a specialist dentist? Probably somebody having surgery, a high-risk procedure, who's got a high-risk condition. Absolutely. But it doesn't mean they need to see them for everything. It just means they need to see that specialist dentist for those hopefully very, very rare occurrences of surgery. So both you and I have done quite a lot of work with the WFH around healthcare professional education. And I've just been thinking while you were talking about whether I'd ever encountered 
a dentist at any of the teachings that I've done. And I don't think I have. No. And what you've just said about prevention is clearly really important, but it's equally important if you're in Kenya or Bangladesh or wherever. So how is or were you able to, with the WFH, improve care for people outside of developed Western countries? I think that prevention is very cheap. Prevention is about fluoride application. Prevention actually is about diet and oral hygiene because the bugs that live in them live there perfectly happily. But when there's lots of sugar going on and that invades the plaque forms on the teeth, the bacteria and the byproducts of that start to decay the tooth. So we have to modify or advise regarding diet and oral hygiene. But mostly we have to advise about how to effectively clean teeth. All of the programs that have worked well in less developed countries have all been about making sure people have got something to clean their teeth with and that they have access to be able to brush fluoride toothpaste on their teeth twice a day. Nowadays in the media, we see everything about toothpaste being about whitening or about sparkling white teeth. Toothpaste is a medicine really with fluoride and applied twice a day to the teeth, wherever you live, that is going to protect your teeth. So it's cheap. So the work that we've done, yes, I've done some work in the Middle East. I've done some work in parts of Africa. This is all about being creative, bringing it into early habits at school, making sure there's really great models where during school, they have a break, they have a brush your tooth song and all of the children, while the song is being played, brush their teeth. It gets into the psyche. It means that your mouth doesn't feel clean unless you've done it. And this is brought into, this is brought into a child's routine going forward. And it's actually as simple as that. The trouble is, Kate, that the mouth was divided somehow from the rest of the body. Somewhere along the way, it became everyone else's problem. Everything else would be looked at, the eyes, the tongue, the lips, the, the color of a person, their joints, their temperature, but nobody would look in the mouth at the teeth. And this is really strange because it's the most common non-communicable disease worldwide. It has a huge health burden. And yet within medicine, it's always put to one side. So it's often forgotten until it's an afterthought. And then it becomes an emergency situation. And as you say, in developed countries, then there isn't the money. Sometimes there isn't the skill. And sometimes there's great fear about giving treatment. So I think that this is a massive gap. It remains a massive gap. And the World Health Organization have launched a campaign to say, this is everyone's problem. Nurses should be trained to give proactive, pragmatic advice. It's not rocket science. It really isn't. That we make sure that doctors are checking that their patients are in touch with dental services. And if they're not, why not? Is there no access? Are they scared? Is it financial? Because the price of letting that decay go forward, especially in someone with haemophilia, is huge. So in overseas countries, it's about training the whole team. It's about getting a cost-effective, locally sourced, sustainable product to be able to use. It doesn't matter if it's a twig from a tree that local people use, we mustn't stigmatize local 
methods. What we need is something to going in the mouth to disrupt the plaque, to remove the plaque and try and counteract the diets that are being introduced to fizzy drinks and all of this stuff. It's very hard, Kate, in areas where there isn't healthy fresh water because people are drinking Coca-Cola because it's safe and it's in a can. So it's hard. It's about access to, to good quality water. It's about access to products. But it's about realizing that this is a simple thing to do and the cost of getting it wrong is huge. And actually, you were just making me smile when I'm thinking about all of those people that you see in Africa with a bit of a twig. Yeah. And it's quite easy to think, oh, that's not very effective. What they need is a toothbrush, but they probably haven't got the money for the toothbrush. But mm. actually, they're trying to clean their teeth. Do you know, Kate, that actually the studies have shown that the twigs that they use have got eucalyptus oil in, they are renewable, they're sustainable, they have no cost when they get worn, you just cut a bit down. People have been scared of the mouth. They've been scared of going into the mouth. Often people were diagnosed with bleeds from the mouth or if their mouths have been poorly looked after, they have daily bleeding from their mouth. So they're scared of going near the mouth. So we have got not only the cultural, we've got not only the financial, but we've got the fear factor of the mouth too. So there are boundaries to be there, but we know from our, our haemophilia population that trust is huge. So we have to make sure that trusted people are giving them the information. So bring some highfalutin kind of dentist in from a perfect life in Dublin, telling you how to look after your mouth is going to be dealt with scepticism. So this is really a case of trainer. We have to make sure that they're trusted elders, they're trusted doctors, they're trusted haemophilia nurses are giving this same message to them. And then we can get that message. But what I've found and what we've known in lots of different programs with different groups is it's not about jetting in somebody uh, necessarily like me or it's one of my peers because we are unrelatable often to these communities even somebody as I say like myself who studied about cultural health influences or whatever it's about trusted people trusted sources of information and also practices that tie in with other areas of their health care so I found that when areas are being introduced to concepts like prophylaxis or prevention of joint bleeds to actually tie in prevention and prophylaxis to mouth and teeth with the same message, these common messages. We've, we know a lot about common risks, and but common messages. If we can be talking about prophylaxis of joints and dental prophylaxis, being looking after the mouth, looking after the teeth twice a day as well, then I think it's easier to sell a concept of prevention because prevention is not in many cultures, even in lots of areas of Europe, prevention is a relatively new concept with the mouth. It's generally been something that you looked and thought about when it went wrong rather than a preventive strategy going forward, a preventive protocol. So for me, it's all about care plans. If a child or an adult has got a bleeding disorder and they have a prophylactic regime or a care regime, it's about remembering to have the mouth 
as part of that care regime whenever we're teaching. And I don't think that needs to be a dentist who's giving that message. And sometimes it's a disadvantage about a dentist giving that message because we put our perfume on, we smile, we're nice to people, but fundamentally, still, sadly, people are fearful of us, don't necessarily trust us. And so I think the more people with the same message, the better. I'd rather train nurses to give that message than I would necessarily go and train the population. Good. Yet again, nurses rock. <laughs> oh, hugely nurses rock. What I have found, Kate, that has worked very well, and lots of colleagues have done this in areas of the world where there isn't a lot of access to factor, and then there is humanitarian aid of factor. Sometimes that factor is not got huge shelf life available and dental outstanding dental surgery by flying in a team or bringing in a team who can do outstanding dental surgery where people have been in agony for or certainly in pain of discomfort for many years months it's a very good way of optimizing the use of that factor. I think that sometimes in hard to reach areas or where there is factor where people need to use it, it's a really good time to do a dental screening and optimize the use because living with dental disease is just unbearable. On a lesser level, the mouth we use for speaking, kissing, eating, many functions related to the mouth. So if we've got toothache, or we've got loose teeth, which means every time we chew our mouth, the mouth bleeds. That's a real quality of life issue. And it can go on for a long time. It affects people's confidence. It affects people's diet choices, their relationships. And so with a relatively straightforward treatment plan, carefully managed, you can transform people's lives by sorting their mouths out. And if somebody I found during the pandemic that as an essential service, people can live in stressful situations, whether it be population displacement, being confined to their home, financial ruin, but add an acute toothache where they can't sleep for two or three days on top of that. And it's absolutely unbearable. So it, it gave me a real insight into just how bad toothache can be and how it can tip people over a barrier of what they can cope with. So I think where in areas which are hard to reach, I think to optimize use of factor and prioritize, and you can, you don't need to, with, with low dose factor protocols, you can get a lot of oral surgery done with a relatively small amount of factor. So I think that's something that, that we could look at with WHF or things like this to make sure rather than the training team going in, an operative team or an expert who will supervise local dental teams to give them confidence so that we're saying, okay, this may be the first time you're treating people with a bleeding disorder, giving high risk procedures. Somebody will come and oversee you and give you confidence because by the time they've done 20 or 30 procedures, they're an almost a mini expert. And I think that the training of dentists needs to be done in their own environment. I see little value 
in bringing dentists over to a different healthcare system and then trying to recreate that when they go back. You have to train the train or train dentists in the environment that they live in, with the products that they live in, with the constraints of the health. And then you are also training the whole team about how to manage care. So I think that's how we can improve things. These are nuggets of excellence that are happening with teams coming in, but we can really formalise that, I believe. So you've just talked about dentistry as the fixture toothache yeah. aspect, which is probably what we all think, but actually within the patients that we look after, there's that real bleeding from gum disease, which might or might not be related to their underlying bleeding disorder and or their dental health. So you've just written a paper which is called The Mouth as the Gateway to the Leaky Body. And it's about the visibility of internal bleeding in the mouths of people with haemophilia. Mm -mm. Clearly that's then coming from your academic role, but would you tell us why you wrote that paper? This chapter was written because of, it's part of a much larger piece of work that I was doing, which was about looking at the role of the mouth and the experience of the mouth within people with haemophilia in Ireland, where I work. I've lived and worked there for about the last 15 years. Now, Ireland would be considered a country that has optimal care for people with bleeding disorders for many years, but is that there are pockets of Ireland that are hard to reach. And this study started really to see if there were inequalities within the area of Ireland regarding access to what would be considered optimal care. So I did a big study of of qualitative interviewing of people with all ages, adults from 18 until I think the eldest guy that I interviewed was 81 living in the west of Ireland. And I found as part of that study, this really interesting concept of the mouth being where the in generally internal bleeding, as we've as, as we think, thought about it with people with haemophilia into joints, into organs, into spaces, was vision was envisioned externally through the mouth from quite an early age and it fitted in with this kind of sociological context about the leaky body where we've got bodily fluids that that leak out of the body um, and actually can be socially unacceptable or certainly stigmatized because when you think about menstruation when you think about public breastfeeding that these are concepts that that often people don't want to think about or don't like they take out of the body idiom of of this perfect body that's perfectly self-contained but during the interviews I found it fascinating and actually very sad to hear about the lived experience of bleeding from the mouth And people would talk about bleeding from the mouth that meant they were swallowing great clots of blood, that meant that they were having blood dribbling out of their sides of their mouth, that meant that they had to not eat in public because they they would be scared that their, their bleeding from their mouth would be seen. We heard about traumatic experiences following dental surgery, even relatively recently, but largely historically. But what this had left was a huge fear of the mouth or invasive procedures in the mouth. So people had avoided treatment or avoided even brushing their teeth because of fear of starting the bleeding off 
or really they'd almost disconnected from the mouth. But it was really interesting that what I found was that people in Ireland who'd actually got fabulous care of their joints, prophylaxis, they were leading really what we might call normal lives. Their disability had almost been eradicated. But in these people, the bleeding from the mouth persisted. It was almost like the last frontier of the haemophilia being visible because they weren't having necessarily the joint bleeds. If they didn't have lesions in their nose, they weren't having nosebleeds, but there was still this fear of what had been passed down over the generations of huge bleeding from the mouth. Plus, once you've experienced bleeding from the mouth, it's something you're very fearful of going forward. So the chapter really is about and I'd be delighted for people to read it, is about this embodiment of the external view of blood. So you can actually see your bleeding disorder laid out in front of you and the experiences of people. And what I hope this chapter will do will add to the work that I've been doing and actually not getting on very well with trying to stop bleeding from the mouth being trivialized. We know that it appears in the research sometimes. But we know that when surveys go out, people aren't generally asked about their bleeding from their mouth. It's not a core outcome. We know from the probe study that people experience life-threatening bleeding from the mouth still, not infrequently. We know that women with von Willebrand's disease, despite their diagnosis, still experience bleeding following dental extractions. Sadly, this is absolutely unnecessary because we now know that with good working between dentists and their teams that treat them, we can actually carry out surgery very safely in people with a wide range of bleeding disorders. So people should not be experiencing that kind of problem with bleeding following surgery. They should be able to confidently have their wisdom teeth out. They should actually be able to confidently have implants if they've lost teeth in the past. But I think that we need to realize that these are quality of life issues for people. The body idiom now means that our population growing up with haemophilia do not want to have gappy teeth. They don't want to only be given dentures as an option. They want to have straight white teeth, the same as everyone else. And more and more sadly in our society, if they don't have those things, they're stigmatized. It's part of image. It's part of fitting in. And I remember somebody saying to me, my gait, my walking isn't as nice as or as good as I would like it to be. So I don't want people to be looking at my teeth that are all crooked and out the way as well. And you think, actually, this is a sign of success of haemophilia, that people now want healthy mouths as well. They don't want limits and they don't need to have limits. So I think that's a different question, Kate, from the one you asked about the bleeding from the mouth and the bleeding from the gums. We know from all of the literature, there's some very nice studies from Germany, there's some from Ireland, there's lots of studies that show that bleeding from the mouth or from the gums of somebody with haemophilia is not attributed to their haemophilia. It's purely he attributed to them having gingivitis, early gum disease, which is reversible and is associated with really three things. It's associated with oral hygiene. It's about cleaning the plaque off. It's associated with mouth breathing, and it's associated with smoking. 
So there's three things that will cause that gingivitis, that inflammation of the gums. So with the alteration of those factors, we can stop bleeding. We can, by keeping the mouth clean, by giving up smoking, reducing smoking, for example, or at least letting people know what the situation is, we can reduce the bleeding. The problem is two things. One, people believe that the bleeding is due to their bleeding disorder or they believe they're brushing too hard, so they stop brushing thoroughly. So they leave the plaque on their gums and it's a vicious circle. It gets worse and worse. They also fear going to the dentist to have their teeth clean because they feel they need lots of factor or they're worried to go. And if they make it to the dentist, then the dentist or the hygienist is often scared to give them the treatment they need. What we know is the bleeding is not due to haemophilia or von Willebrand's, but we know that if gingivitis or gum disease is left untreated or ignored, then the gums will bleed more than the typical population. And as the untreated gum disease gets worse, it becomes harder and harder to treat. And the bleeding can last for as long as 10, 20 minutes from the mouth following brushing because the disease is advanced or it can even happen spontaneously. People talk about spontaneous bleeding. That's because you've got gum disease, the teeth are a little bit loose in the gums, they're moving when you're chewing, and it sets a bleed off. I've, I, I met only this last month a lady who was wearing her mask because of the pandemic, and every time she took her mask off, it was, it was really stained with blood, which showed just how much of an impact bleeding gums has for people with bleeding disorders. It really is unsociable. It can cause real intimacy issues. If you've got bleeding gums or if you're gonna kiss somebody or and you've got bleeding from your mouth, it's a real passion killer. And I mean, this is really, really important because as physical intimacy is such integral part of a life throughout the whole life course. This isn't just about adolescents and young adults. This is about everybody throughout their life course. So I think that bleeding gums is something that has hidden impacts and is often trivialized. And certainly in the data that's collected, they use things like the bat tool, which really only measures bleeding following extractions or bleeding that lasts, doesn't even mention, it doesn't even trigger to put a tick in a box or a score unless that bleeding lasts 10 minutes. Once something's uh, bleeding for 10 minutes after you've brushed your teeth, you're really into some quite severe gum disease. So we have to really educate people that bleeding from the gums following brushing at more than a few seconds is a sign of underlying gum problems that need treating. And we have so much evidence to show that we can treat this in every bleeding condition and reverse that bleeding. And I think that's really important. So Kate, this chapter was written to actually try and join the mouth up to the rest of the body to show the impact of bleeding from the mouth and show why bleeding from the mouth is particularly feared or particularly stigmatized in this group because it is associated with so much history from the past and so much suffering from the past that people just try and ignore it and pretend it's not there. Alison, thank you. That's been absolutely brilliant and it's certainly made me think 
that we should be doing much more about what is just an in inverted commas a bit of a mouse bleed because it's not really just a bit of a mouse bleed at all is it i hope that everybody else that's listened has also found that inspirational and i'm sure they will have done and hopefully we'll be able to improve the care of the people that we're looking after particularly around their oral health and oral hygiene using referral to dentist local specialist or whoever appropriately so thank you to Alison for what I think has been a really exciting and interesting hemecast about the real importance of people's mouths and teeth beyond bleeding into quality of life and lived experience. Finally, a thank you as ever to our sponsors, CSL Bearing, Shugai Roche, Sobi and Takeda, all of whom make hemecast possible. <laughs>